how do you go about making your voice sound like someone else's? And why would you? I'll be chatting to a bunch of people who can answer those questions and many more as they reveal the dark arts of impressionists. I'm Simon Lipson, and this is Making an Impression. I'm delighted to welcome to Making an Impression comedian, playwright, translator, <laughs> and of course, peerless impressionist, Rory Bremner. How are you, Rory? I'm fine, peerless. Very strange. <laughs> uh, yes, lovely you're, to be here. So how are you struggling through lockdown? Not struggling at all. Nope. <laughs> to say no, we'd be very, very lucky. Uh, we're out in the country as a family and sort of pretty self-contained. And it just always makes me think of the people who are, have it tough. Yeah. Matt Ford, of course, another impressionist. Yes. And I did a thing with him the other day remotely. We did a little sketch, which we can talk about later on. Mm. And he was being Donald Trump, which he does very well. But he'd been in his flat in Hampstead, in Highgate, I think, first floor flat. He hadn't been out of the flat for 10 weeks. Yeah. And I mm. thought, God, not to be outside the flat for 10 weeks. And that's, you know, they're yeah. the people who really had it tough. And of course, you know, worse than that, Tim Brooke Taylor, who I toured with in January yeah. um, and loved as a fan, as one of the goodies, and got his autograph in the 1970s yeah. as a 14-year-old. And we'd just done, I'm sorry, I haven't a, t- uh, a clue on tour. And um, Easter weekend, he'd gone. Yeah. With coronavirus. Yeah. So, you know, it's affected people out there. Um, but living in the country we've been sort of quite lucky and obviously we've had fantastic weather so um it's just been about somehow kind of doing our bit you get asked a lot to help with charities and do quizzes and um do a lot of nhs fundraising um yeah. so that's how you can sort of somehow try to do your bit and you, you've got a couple of daughters as as i have i think mine are a bit older than yours how how are you getting along are you all mucking along are you finding it <laughs> everyone finding their little space where they can escape or, or they kind of are points? i mean i my daughter my 19 year old ava she lives on her own planet and um i think she's quite relieved because she'll be assessed for her a levels rather than uh, examined because you know she'd go to pieces on exam day right and we've got a 16 year old lila who is a dead keen show jumper but she got kicked by a horse on the knee about sort of seven weeks ago and it broke yeah. her kneecap Ooh. so she's been off games for the last sort of six or seven weeks uh, and supposedly that was a time when she was going to do some work but um i think she's just been in her room and you don't yeah. know what they get up to you don't know I mean, it's yeah. on social media yeah. you just notice that they're using up an awful lot of broadband let's uh move away from lockdown chat for a bit i first became aware of you in the, I guess, the early 80s. Now, we were both... Um, <laughs> it's a while. 18th century. <laughs> it's yeah. a while back. Right. Um, we were both London University students. I think you were studying French and German. I was laboring uh, through a law degree at LSE. <laughs> and while I was loathing every minute, and you know, in, in my spare time, I was messing about playing pinball in the bar you were out testing yourself on the london comedy circuit yeah so well, it, was funny. it was a brilliant time i mean you think about the people who were out there then there was mark Steele, who's still going strong now and uh jeremy <laughs> hardy and uh harry enfield and julian clary and this wonderful double act Calypso beat, uh, which was, they did wonderful sort of made up improvised songs. And one half of that was Ainsley Harriet. Ainsley. Yeah. Um, and there were sort of you know, the older people, older people like Tony Allen and, and John Dowie, of course, but it was a really, uh, and Arnold Brown. Um, it was 
the absolute kind of explosion uh, in that, uh, the early 80s mm. of that alternative comedy scene. And I think something had happened in the licensing laws, which meant there were a lot of pub theatres that normally had put on plays or something, but they couldn't do it anymore. So they became stand-up venues. And, you know, many an evening you would start off at the Finborough Arms in Chelsea or Fulham, um, get on the tube and end up in the Hemingford up in Islington and then end up back at Jongleur's down in Battersea and, yeah. you know, doing three gigs in an evening. And yeah, just heady days. And I mean, like a lot of the time, I just, you know, was just doing stuff so fast, I wasn't even aware I was doing it. Yeah. Um, just sort of swept up along in that, in that tide. It was brilliant. And I was born in Edinburgh. So the Edinburgh Festival was kind of in the background as well, but more because I, I was aware of it in the late 70s. Because if you were in Edinburgh between sort of 79 and 82, you would have seen Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry, Emma Thompson, uh, Rick Mayle, Victoria Wood, all these people, and many, many more. Um, mm. So, you know, there's a lot of inspiration out there. And the comedy store, uh, the comic strip, or the comedy store, I think it was, and that's where I saw Chris Barry, who I knew. Um, and he was a kind of early influence in terms of, you know, the live shows, because uh, we both were cricket fans, both loved Richie Benno. And um, it was a great time to be around and alive and, and gigging. I bet it was, and because um, by the time I didn't get on to the circuit till much later, um, and I think by then it, it had found a kind of a, you know, Jonglers was very corporate. It had that very kind of almost like you know this is a uh, a stag nights and hen nights, and it didn't yeah. didn't feel like that febrile, exciting. Well, I think they'd kind of, I think they'd kind of monetized it at that point, yes. and they'd realized it it had become a brand and. Uh, yeah. As I think John Cleese says, you know, once you get once once money, once money gets involved, it sort of seems to ruin everything. I don't know why not. And I think part, partly that that was part of it. It did become very corporate and very stagnant, and um, very, very antithetical to comedy because you know it's it's about an audience from all sorts of different backgrounds and sort of finding something common in the in in the comedian that makes the room laugh as opposed yeah. to come on mate you know we're here to spend money and, and enjoy ourselves i'm sad that i i missed that i, I think i i just about played the the old comedy store before it moved to its current location and that was that had a lovely feel about it you know it was, the stage was kind of skew whiff and every the seats were all over the place and the the, the dressing room was a sort of sticky flawed pit um <laughs> You came to prominence with a song, uh, 19, <laughs> 19 Not yes. Out. And now, I, Richie Benno, for me, I, I didn't ever think of myself as an impressionist. I was your, you know, the, the typical playground mimic, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was the guy, you know, to walk around all day talking, uh, say, what a marvelous, what a marvelous shot that was. And, That's and, you know, very good, by the way. Thank you very much. Uh, everything was, was funneled through Benno and... You know, it could just be, you know, how was your day? I had a pretty difficult uh, maths problem, but uh, many. <laughs> uh, morning, everyone. Morning, morning. And he did it with that. That was the best one, by the way. When, when, Benno, when Benno died and somebody just posted and they wrote M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. So it was morning, everyone. Morning, everyone. Isn't that genius? It's Lovely. Genius. And he had that lovely sideways look at the at the camera with through uh, through a squinty eye, very and shrewd eye, very shrewd eye. And he he would deliver his uh, his stuff with this kind of glint. I always remember when uh, he was talking about 
he read a letter out or something and, you know, somebody's wife wouldn't let him watch the cricket. And he <laughs> said, uh, no soul, these women. <laughs> what? Yes, it did. It, oh, was, it was the 1970s, I guess. I, well, they'd, they'd be tearing his statue down now. But he was, <laughs> he was, he was <laughs> would. though, because, I mean, he, he'd occasionally just come out with stuff like, he'd say, Glenn McGrath out for one, just 99 runs short of what would have been a remarkable <laughs> century. <laughs> and he was dry, wasn't he? He was very dry. dry, so yeah. dry. What was another one he said? said, you know, the thing about captaincy is it's uh, 80% luck and 20% skill. Then you pause and say, yeah. but don't try it without the 20%. And just lovely. <laughs> and it's yeah. Brian Johnson who caught me out. You probably you might know the story, but we did Test Match Special, A View from the Boundary. And old John, he said, oh, come on, brothers, let's come and do this. We've got, uh, uh, come and sit in the box and you do a rather good Richie Benno. And he got me to do Richie Benno, but I didn't know Benno was standing right behind me. And uh, I sort of got halfway through it, and this man tapped me on the shoulder and said, well, that's all very well, but what about the royalties? That's what I want to know. So, yeah, he got me started, but funnily enough, it was, I was always slightly worried about whether I was treading on Chris's toes, Chris Barry's toes, because he did a very good Richie Benno as well. But, you know, we had similar backgrounds as always. So when he actually got to doing David Coleman, for example, I backed yeah. right off, because um, yeah. it's funny how impressionists have... A, a sort of key impression that they're so good yeah. and they are so good at it that I didn't, yes. I never wanted to do it because I thought, no, he's got that. And I mean, I could, I could run through, I mean, it's like Alistair McGowan's Richard Madeley, you know? It's <laughs> magical, magical. magical. Wonderful. And a Gary Lineker does really well. John Carlshaw, you know, Tom Baker yeah. or Patrick Moore, but you'd never, you'd, you'd never win with Tom Baker, with, with the John Carlshaw and Tom Baker com- competition. Lewis McLeod, his Jeremy oh, Vine. The Vine you know, is just, extraordinary. Or Jan, you know, Jan yeah. does a wonderful Victoria Wood or uh, Theresa May. Yeah. And sometimes you think, I don't want to do that impression because that belongs to that person. Absolutely um, right. Uh, did, did you ever find yourself, I mean, I, I, I loved Chris Barry. I didn't, you know, he sort of appeared out, out of nowhere and he, did a lot of voices on Spitting Image. And he he came up with the Coleman, with, uh, with that kind of that quavering, well, 1-0. And he just did that. And I thought, you can't do somebody like I wasn't really an impressionist in those days. I just used to like voices and, and listening to people produce them. And suddenly you thought, yes, you can do that voice. It is possible. And yeah. quite often an impressionist will open your, another impressionist will open your eyes to something you thought wasn't achievable, as I, as I think we were saying before we started chatting, that you're John Motson, which is <laughs> the, kind of the gold standard. You, I learned how to do John Motson watching and listening to you do it. <laughs> well, actually, very interestingly enough, it was, it was just that strange sort of vowel sound. And, absolute, and, and now you listen to him, and these voices change as you get older. But he's got, yeah. he, you know, he does a lot of the laugh. <laughs> and, but I don't know what it was, but we loved Motti so much that he became a character in the, um, when we did, I think it was Rory Bender, who else, the sort of you know, mid-90s. And, um, <laughs> and Motti, Motti actually became a detective. And he started to do these really strange shows. And at the end, it was always, case solved. And at the end of the series, I think, yeah. what can I give all the crew and the cast for? I like to give them a little present at the end. And we had these motties made, like Oscars, with a little sheepskin coat. And they're oh, about the same height as an Oscar. But just, just so they won a motty, actually. And, and I don't know where it came from, actually. <laughs> I'm struggling. I've got to say, I'm, I'm struggling with my voice today, So I don't know whether it's lockdown. You're probably going to get it about, about 50% of what it should be today. Well, I don't know if, what if, it is. 
look, if that's 50%, it's, it's, it's pretty damn good. I, I think you, you'll you, find, actually, it's 61.4%. Because actually, in the <laughs> FA Cup final in 1987, <laughs> I got as low as 48%. <laughs> <laughs> that lovely pedantry of of Mutson. You you mentioned the Motti laugh there, and this is a this is something I really want to talk about with you because although you appeared quite different from the the Mike Yarwood kind of thing, and and the, who do you do? You know the the, the velvet bow tie and the the dinner jacket brigade mm-hmm. of, of impressionists, who were some of whom were fantastic. Paul Melbourne, and Johnny Moore, and Aidan J. Harvey. Yeah, they were really good. But you you brought impressions i felt into the alternative you know this 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 thriving new alternative scene well let, let me as john, let yeah. me as john fortune would say um let, when he was doing george parr let me let me stop you there um <laughs> say you know my formative influences of course mike yarwood of course as with all of us because yeah. he was the one who really transformed it because it was a kind of a special act before it was a bit like a ventriloquist wasn't it you were down mm. the variety down the variety bill but mike yarwood put it absolutely into the mainstream he got millions i mean sort of 12 14 million i think yeah. maybe and you know prime time entertainment so i grew up watching that as well as other comedians i loved like you know dick emery of course and uh, who's more sort of harry enfield sort of became a little bit more uh, yep. dick emery and also um and dave allen but so mike yard the impressionist and uh, who do you do as you've mentioned all those and i think you know i my early days i, I did a my peter o'sullivan was very much aiden j harvey's you know when you just uh, jumped on the microphone <laughs> and then it came up to this fence i remember it well then you started again Going over. And yeah. here's one for you, Stanley Baxter. Because, yes, of course, of I was course. Scottish, brought up, yeah. brought up in Edinburgh. And he did the pantomime. I think he alternated one year be Glasgow, one year be Edinburgh. And, um, you know, he was just class and just a wonderful, his voices. And, you know, he would do some of the black and white film stars. Uh, but also, yeah. you know, he was the first person to do the Queen, uh, as it were. And they called it, I think, was it the Countess of Brenda or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it was still, it was almost like a sort of Lord Chamberlain thing, that it was still kind of, oh God, you you can't do the Queen. But he did. Yeah. Um, so those were the influences that I was, yeah. uh, so that's very much the part. And my first thing I made in a woodwork class, the only thing I made in a woodwork class was a pipe. So I could do an impression of Harold Wilson, of, um, of Mike Yard's impression of Harold Wilson. We were of a similar vintage, and, and I guess we both were brought up on Yarwood was was the impression du jour. He fantastic, but going forward a little bit, you and I really wanted to get to this because you mentioned you mentioned the John Motson laugh. And I was kind of trying to clumsily make the point that even though you were on the alternative scene, you were still doing some of those what I would call mainstream impressions. The targets Mm -hmm. were mainstream, Mm -hmm. but you gave them another spin. And I think that's what worked so well. And the one that knocked me out in those days was Bob Monkhouse, because you had this manic laugh and these crazy eyes and the the hand gestures and you <laughs> absolutely nailed because he didn't he did all that but you just found all of those little ticks i, I mean just to I say i don't know what it was <laughs> uh, i think that was you, know, you, you focus on something and it was that was it was that 
Or some hyena and a breathlessness. And, uh, and about, mm, you know, really, mm. And sometimes you just slide out of the screen, you know, from left to right, you know, just holding it with your eyes, going, mm. Um, it was really quite a cruel impression. I, I think he didn't like it very much. Simon Cartwright and I used to talk about it because Simon Cartwright did a one-man show yeah. um, written by Alex Lowe, funnily enough, I found out recently. And it was brilliant. And, and Cartwright, if, look it up on YouTube. He did the show as Bob Markhouse. And, and I had him on a show in Edinburgh. Um, and he did this thing, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and he, he, was, he was brilliant. I think maybe Monkhouse thought mine was based on on Mike Yarwood's, it wasn't really. It was. I remember the first one we did. I think Barry Cryer wrote the sketch, and um, he, it was. He was. He was doing a Bob Monkhouse chat show, and um, Barry called it the Bob Sequious show because he said he was too <laughs> so too smarming with his guests. And then we did Bob says sincerity sucks. So I think yes, you're right. I think there was a bit of an edge there. But he then went into. I did a sketch a sort of routine which I used for a long time which we called the Jurassic Park routine, when it was just about sounds. And it was, so you heard David Attenborough in his early... Because well, At- Attenborough's voice has changed. Because yes. when he was young, it was very open, but now it's closed down and it's become more sibilant. In those days, he introduced it, and it was, um, it was all these animals. And so Den- you had the, the Dennis Norden was... Because my li- li- Dennis Norden line was always... It- if, if you're one of those people that can remember what I did to make me famous in the first place. <laughs> it was always... But, 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 and yeah. Monk has to... <laughs> and so it became all these these creatures. And I tried to kind of revive it recently with the... Obviously with the, with the Jimmy Kai. Do, ah, 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 and that because they became sort of creatures and their, their laughs and their ticks. And I think it, part of knowing it was, was um, we always used to work so last minute when I was doing Brenda Burn Fortune that literally we'd rewrite it, John Langdon and I, John who died the other day, yes. um, we'd rewrite it in the makeup chair and then he'd go and put it on the screen. And I'd sort of warm up the audience um, after the warm-up man as it, I could see the script being written in to the autocue. And then I wanted to quickly sight read it. So I would get Helen, the, um, Sarah, the autocue operator, to whiz it through. So I'd read, just skim read, speed read what I was just about to do, the monologue. But obviously I didn't want to give it away to the audience. So I would just do the impression. So if, let's say if it was Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and Nelson Mandela, for example. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Nelson Mandela. So it would be... Oh, 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 <laughs> and funnily, and the audience would just laugh at the sounds of them. And I, yeah. I was just doing the sounds of them. I was reading it in my head. But you realize just how much it was just, and other impressions have talked about, you know, the rhythm of, of characters. Sometimes just, just do the sounds and the rhythms and people would know who you were doing. And sometimes just for fun, I would, you know, I would, I don't know, do, uh, 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 and, and they'd say, who do you think I'm doing? And they go, Bill Clinton. Uh, you're, you're absolutely spot on. That was Bill Clinton. Yeah. Or, mm, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Who's that? They go, Bob Monkhouse. And it's, that's just, it is fun, isn't it? I mean, at the end, it is. it's just this silly talent that we have. <laughs> and we're all kind of fans. Uh, I think Darren said we're all sort of detectives. But we're all fans. I mean, Benno came from years and years of watching cricket on, on yeah. television. I just watched Richie Benno and, and Jim Laker, who was the, the oh. common. I, I remember Jim Jim Laker, the one I, I couldn't really do Jim Laker, but he just used to go, and his bald him. <laughs> and his, <laughs> and his bald him. Yes, absolutely <laughs> right. 
we've come back to cricket, which is great, because I had a re-listen to uh, 19 Not Out, which was your <laughs> Benno, Johnston, and Arlott. And it was, a, it was a parody of 19, the Paul Hardcastle hit, yep. which was about the average age of uh, American soldiers who died in Vietnam. Uh, but I didn't know until I picked it up on Google that he actually helped you he produced it for you and helped you write bits of it. And uh, that I found was, quite remarkable. Well, that was, uh, you just did David Coleman. Quite remarkable. <laughs> quite remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, what it was, was, was Paul Hardcastle, his, it was 19, and his producer was Simon Fuller. And Simon Fuller, who his, his agency was called 19, uh, obviously very, very close with Simon Cowell. Um, they did a lot of stuff together. But Simon Fuller was the producer. Um, but Simon Fuller's brother is Kim Fuller. Now, Kim Fuller's written a lot for Lenny Henry. I mean, he's, mm. he's Lenny's main, main writer. Uh, and he worked with Jeff Atkinson, my producer and writer, for many, many years. So I just found myself, I was on Capital Radio doing jingles and bits and pieces, and I just had this idea about the cricket thing. And John Sachs, who I was working for, I mean, he got me into a studio so quickly, my feet didn't touch the ground. So we're going to make this, we're going to do this. And I met a couple of other people, and Kim we knew beforehand. And so Kim was almost waiting in the, in the studio with a few extra lines. And I think it was one of those ones where, rather like, um, well, not, not, so quite Rossini standard, but you know Rossini was, was he was locked in a room until he'd finished writing. I was kind of yeah. locked in the studio until we'd we'd finished uh, recording, and so it was kind of quite spontaneous. Some of Kim's lines, some of our lines, but yeah, I mean they were cooperative. And I think now, gosh, if you when I think the original was about the Vietnam soldiers who died there, I think could we actually do that these days? Or would people be saying, God, how can you, yeah. you know, desecrate the memory of, of of all those Vietnamese combat soldiers? It didn't it didn't occur to me. It was just as, it was just nineteen, and it fitted because. As it happened, I think David Gower's average was 19, which is quite extraordinary, really. Remarkable, <laughs> remarkable fact, that, Simon. Remarkable but, fact. Yeah, so there was a lot of the sports fan. In my early days, um, even Jongleurs and Finborough Arms, you know, there was Peter O'Sullivan was in the Bill McLaren, I think, because, of course, I was born and brought up in Edinburgh, and <laughs> they'll be dancing in the streets of Drumna Drochet tonight, I tell you. <laughs> And sometimes you break it down and say, there's Robertson to Rutherford, Rutherford to Rennick, to someone else with an R at the beginning of their name that I can rule. <laughs> and finally, actually then, when he died, Bill McLaren, it was Lawrence Delalio who was talking about him. And he said, oh, I loved his turn of phrase. He would say things like, oh, look at Jonah Lomu. <laughs> I don't know much about hard carrying, but I'd be shifting bricks facing him out there this afternoon. And I thought, no, that wasn't Bill McLaren. That was one of our lines that we'd <laughs> yes. given. But there was a lot of the sports fan, and Alistair spoke about this with his football. Mine was, it was Bill McLaren, it was Peter O'Sullivan, it was Richie Benno, it was uh, Brian Johnson and John Arlott. And then it sort of branched out to the comedians, and rather like Yarwood was working, don't forget, when we were younger, there were just three channels, only latterly four. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were sitting down as a nation to the same sort of meal at the end of the evening, if you like. So people like David Attenborough, who's still going, you know, David Attenborough, Bruce Forsyth, Bob Monkhouse, yeah. Dave Allen, indeed, um, people like that. Everybody knew who they were, yes. you know? And so those were sort of, those are the early uh, pickings. And now, of course, television is so diverse that there's no guarantee that people who watch Love Island watch, I don't know, Simon Sharma or something. Mm. So, you know, they're so diverse that, and I think part of that, when I, I realized that quite early on, and I so started to do more news characters because mm. we sort of, you know, you'd go off in all different directions as an audience, but sort of come to come together around the news. Mm. So politicians and presidents, they were kind of, and, and you know, people like, do you remember John Cole, the, 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 the 
you know, <laughs> well, the atmosphere in the House of Commons was predictably unpredictable, <laughs> but most conservatives unanimously divided. It was just a really sort of, we did a strangely sort of um, complete yeah. oxymoron mm. thing uh, with him. But, you know, because people knew that because they were on the news, but um, for the rest of it, yeah, I think it was, it was sports comedy. Billy Connolly was an early one. And now, now later, Connolly, I got more political as the years went on. You did. I'm going to come on to that. I just, I wanted to ask you about, about people like Connolly. Again, I, I think my own Billy Connolly was informed by your impression of, of Connolly. And Roger Moore was another one that I absolutely <clears throat> loved. One of the things that was such surprising about your Roger Moore impression was that your natural pitch seems to me to be somewhere, I guess, in, in the middle of the, the male range. Yeah. Um, we've had, you know, I've had uh, Lewis McLeod on, whose who's natural voices we don't hear, and it's quite gruff. And, uh, and then uh, somebody like Danny Postill, who's much oh. higher. But you produced a Roger Moore that was, uh, I, I, that's extraordinary. I, 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 and I thought, how are you accessing those lower, well, are you, are you, is there a technique or is it just something? Yes, there that, is. Yeah. There is. I mean, I would say about technique, I mean, I, I'm not necessarily that forensic about technique because I, I, there's so much of it, honestly, is instinctive. It really mm. is. I'm not sure I can do a good Roger Moore today. I'll have a go at it because I, I sort of, as I say, I feel like half my voice is missing. But the way I used to get around that, my first shows, like at the Donmar Warehouse, I used to begin doing Sandy Gould. Do you remember the newsreader? Mm. 10 o'clock, this is Sandy Gould, looking like it's much later. And we'd do that. <laughs> but I wanted to get that, uh, I wanted to get that dry rasp at the back of the throat. And sometimes I couldn't do it like today. And so what I'd do, I would take a cigarette I didn't really smoke, but I'd take a cigarette and I would put it, I would put it in my mouth with my mouth open, but the cigarette the wrong way around. So I put the lit wow. end into my <laughs> open yeah. and breathe <sighs> until, I, until I got the rasp that I needed. And it was a sim- with Roger Moore, and to get that now is you just have to hyperventilate. You have to really take deep breaths. <sighs> um, <clears throat> until suddenly you find <laughs> Right down there. I, I say even now today, because I'm yeah. missing the rasp. I know maybe it's because of lockdown, because I haven't been exercising the muscles. Mm. But it is. You've got to really, and sometimes you, you know, you do it so often. You'd feel, you, you're so so deeply, you'd feel a bit faint. Yeah. Well, that's God, man, that, that is fascinating. Feeling, feeling a bit, and you can get really, really deep if you. I'm yeah. trying it. So. <gasps> I don't know how deep I can go, but um, anyway, th- so that was the Roger Moore thing. And I heard again, Darren doing it uh, the other day, but you've got to have the script to go with it. That's another thing. And so well, uh, there is that, there is that. I, I wouldn't say my performance was wooden, but on hot days, I was a fire risk. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's quite a natural one because it's, I, my natural voice is, is, is fairly deep. So I would just uh, go down. That's very there. good. Pick it up. Thank you very much. I think that's probably the first time I've done it for about 30 years. I had Steve Nallen on the show. I'm sure yep. you know Steve, uh, yep. who's again got a, a he's brilliant at female characters and his natural voice <laughs> is pretty high. And he has a technique for accessing these lower regions of his voice. Uh, Pronunciation? No, that's not it. That's, what you, that's how you turn people over when they've got COVID. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> forget forget I said that. But it's something to do with getting the vocal cords kind of twisted up. And he suddenly went into this terrifying low gruff thing. And I thought, I just had no idea about technique. You mentioned a little earlier on about how you found your niche 
in, I guess, political satire and news of the day, your various shows, Bremner, Bird and Fortune, which was an absolutely brilliant show. And much of that was, I think all of that work was something you did hand in glove with John Langdon, who you mm-hmm. mentioned. John's obviously a hugely influential figure in, in your career. He, he briefly touched on my career because he was represented by my agent at the time, Jeremy Hicks. Yes. And I was desperately searching for some material for one of my very, very early television shows, which was at the Birmingham Hippodrome. Right. Uh, in front of a huge audience. I was, wasn't ready for this. I've only been going for five minutes. And it was being, it was going to go on BBC One. And I, I had a, I wanted to do Billy Connolly, but I, t- I just couldn't think of a clean line <laughs> for Billy Connolly. <laughs> and he said, I'll, I'll get John to write some bits. And John wrote me some stuff. It was faxed through on the morning. And I, yes, I went, of course. Yeah, Late. of course. Yeah. And I uh, traveled up to Birmingham and I used the line. And which I won't bore you with now because I've been using it ever since. And it's... Oh, I want to hear it now. Well, it was, it was something like uh, Billy Connolly saying, um, you know, as I go on my journeys around Scotland, I see all the ab- abandoned warehouses and derelict shipyards. I see the unemployment and the slums. And people come up to me and say, Billy, how comes? And this is quite weird. They say, Billy, how comes with all of this misery in Scotland, you're still so cheerful? And I say, because I live in fucking Los Angeles. <laughs> I, thought, I didn't say, didn't use the expletive on the, the TV, but oh, I... But you would have done. But you, there's would, so much good stuff there. So, I mean, with me, yeah. Connolly, it's because I was born in Edinburgh, so I kind of feel a facility for Scottish voices. And there was yeah. a time when most of the cabinet, I mean, Robin Cook... They were all Scottish, Brown, yeah. yeah. And John Reid and even were Scottish... But Billy had that thing. He always used to say, there's two seasons in Scotland, winter and July. was a thing. <laughs> it was all that holding on, you know. That, that, like that. I, mean, I, I rushed that impression there, but I would have... Oh, I, you did have it. And, uh, it's okay. Lewis, it wasn't Scottish. brilliant. So it's okay. It's one. Oh, no, it's great. And Lewis MacLeod, <laughs> he does a great one as well. Oh, my many boo. Yes, I look... Scottish, so it's a kind of, and I think you know, uh, and Alistair was kind of Midland, so I think he somehow or other um, he's very good on the sort of Birmingham voices. And he, uh, what Alistair did so well, Alistair McGowan has done so well, is he's realised that Gary Lineker is halfway between Birmingham and is it, is it halfway between Birmingham and yes, Sheffield? He, yes, he, he did Scotland. say, yeah, yeah. He locates it very, very precisely. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, so I think Connolly was a Scottish thing. And again, somebody who I, I just worshipped as a comedian. Yeah. And he had such a lot of energy. And he was, actually, he was in Jurassic Park as well. And his catchphrase was, oh, I, do you bloody think so? Oh, do you bloody think so? <laughs> oh, wow. So he had a kind of animal. Uh, there's yeah. something about making. But yes, oh yeah, we were talking about the Johns, weren't we? And yeah. the politics. Um, so I mean, really, I had sort of my influences. We talked about the two Johns uh, when we were doing the show, John Bird and John Fortune. Put to that the third John, John Langdon, the writer. But there was a fourth John, and that was John Wells. Yeah. Now John Wells had been sort of you know around with the satire boom, as had John Bird and John Fortune in the sort of sixties. And he directed my stage show in 1990. And it was just at the turn of the decade that I was getting more political because I wanted to, I thought you've got these voices and you, you should have something to say and you should be doing impressions, maybe not so much of other comedians, but of people who had something to say or who had an influence or who were you know, involved in, in news and, and politics. So John Wells helped me with that. And John Bird and John Fortune, so they came from that background. John Bird had, had famously done 
Harold Wilson, I think, in the in the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. And John Bird, he was going to present that was the week that was, but he had to go to America. And so instead they got this young man called David Frost, and the rest is history. <laughs> There's another voice that's changed through time. Yes. He was young as Hello, good evening, and everyone used to do David Frost like that, and even Michael Sheen. And then in his older years it got older rather like the way that Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden do Michael Caine. And I remember yes, lastly, yeah. David Frost said to me, he said, he said do, do people's voices change as they get older? And he meant, do I really sound like that? But I started to <laughs> make him. But he was, I mean, he was such a big influence on my career, David Frost. So loved, um, you know, loved him and, and sort of miss him still. There's nobody like him. But John Bird, uh, so he was, uh, in, and, and they kind of, because I, I, it was the end, it was quite a political time. We'd, been, we'd come through the Thatcher <laughs> things. We were into John Major. Mm. And suddenly what had made Mike Yarwood's life very difficult, which was, you know, having everything focused and so much. So I didn't, don't think we saw it again until Tony Blair, was where a government was so much w- about one person. Mm. And it had been very difficult uh, for Mike Yarwood, but very good, of course, ironically, for Steve Nallon when Thatcher was around. And my very first tour was actually with Steve Nallon as Thatcher and Jeremy Hardy. But I was major. And interestingly, major came along. Because, you know, for years, Simon, when we did a train spot, do your train spot a voice. Uh, well, he would probably... Yeah, you see? Like that, yeah. you know. <laughs> and you see, instinctively, you think, oh, yes, I know all the times of all the trains. Oh, yes, the 7.55. Yes, I know all about that one. <laughs> and you think, oh, hang on, it's a train spotter. But then... Yeah. And I've heard John talk about it. It's John Culture as well. But you get the train spotter, and you add, you add a little bit of Julian Clary to that. <laughs> and, and, and what you actually get, Simon, if you're listening very carefully... Uh, is you hear uh, John Major, and what that is is a combination of the train spotter voice and Julian Clary, which is a rather remarkable thing. <laughs> it is, and I love that. I love if we're talking about Billy Connolly. I love the yeah. thing, you know, when you put two voices together and you get yeah. a third. And I talked about Tony Blair, and right, and again, he's changed. He's you know really kind of got very croaky now. But if you're doing you know that Tony Blair, and it's all that sort of intonation, but if you add to that Chris. Tarrant, who has a sort of adenoidal thing. <laughs> okay, uh, um, uh, is it going to be me? Or uh, you can hear that sort of very adenoidal. Um, if you, if you put, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and if you add that to Tony Blair, you'll actually get a Miliband. And it's, yes, really, it's, one of those, uh, it's one of those really remarkable. Um, you know, you ask me what I say, and I say this. You know, on that headstone, it was all written there. You know, I'm never going to give you up. I'm never going to let you down. <laughs> I'm never going to turn around and desert you. Um, and that absolutely yeah. is, that's Tony Blair. That's, you know, how people mix paint. Yeah. And you think, yeah. They, oh, three litres, three, you know, we need uh, 300 mils of that. And so Ed Miliband is, they, there's the equation. Uh, Tony Blair plus Chris Tarrant equals Ed Miliband. Fantastic. <laughs> and actually, Alistair McGowan was talking about this. Not quite. I know, I know he does some, some lovely bits in his stand-up. You know, he would turn from Dot Cotton into, uh, I can't remember. Steptoe. Steptoe. And yeah. he, he spoke oh. to me, yeah, and he talked to me about how he would, you know, he said, I've been in this business a long time. And when I hear a new voice, I can kind of think, yeah, that fits into this category of voice. And so he can kind of place it's it. It's a and then, chart, isn't it? It is like that. Just going back a little bit to your uh, involvement in 
political satire. This is interesting because you started out on on BBC, BBC Two, I think. Uh, yep, yep. And then you shifted over to Channel Four, and did that free you up a little bit? Because I think your political uh, leanings are relatively well known. You know, and, and one has to be careful on the BBC not to not to sh- let that show too much. Well, did really, Channel- yeah, I mean, and it's it's in a way, you know, because people go oh, about bias and this and that, but. You know, bias and point of view. It's interesting. I mean, I, I talk about it now that it's almost gone so far as if you had somebody who just done a round the world yacht trip, like Ellen mm-hmm. MacArthur has just done a round the world yacht trip. You know, they always feel the need to get on somebody from the flat Earth Society to put the other side of the argument. Yeah. You, think, you know, there are some. Yeah. So yes. So well, the move to Channel Four actually coincided with becoming more political because so the early show now something else with John Dowie, the Flaming Hamsters, Steve Steen and Jim Sweeney, yeah, um, and Jeremy Hardy who played the sort of boom operator. Um, that was the first couple of years, and that was a sort of gang show in a way, and it was sort of quite broad, sort of uh, broadly sort of more sort of variety ish. And then it changed to sort of more when, when Kevin Bishop became the producer, we sort of became a little bit, and Jeff Atkinson became more involved as a sort of lead writer. And it started to have more of a point of view. And it was just on the, as I say, the turn of the decade, 89, 90. And at the BBC, I was finding, I said, look, why don't we get together with current affairs, which I think some of them were still over in Lime Grove in that state, that, that, those days. I said, why don't we actually make, make a little department out of the news and current affairs thing and comedy and let's have a, a sort of satire unit and sort of you know really because i was aware at that stage that you needed good research it needed good research it needed good facts because otherwise you know it's just graffiti you know you mm-hmm. couldn't just sort of say oh you know john major's a knob you know you'd have to um ah, i think that would be most unfair in fact i think in context i think there's been a lot worse since um but and I remember, and I'd said to Jim Moyer, who's head of the head of comedy, and he said, uh, he said, no, he said, I don't have to buy the dairy if I want to have two bottles of milk, was his mm. way of putting it. And then I, I said, well, you know, can we, can we, can we sort of make a more, and I actually wrote a sort of treatment and gave it to whoever, I can't remember who was the head of BBC at the time, and said, look, this is what we want to do. And they didn't go for it. And then kind of, it, it was almost Jeff and um, Elaine Morris. It was kind of, I, I was... I just went into a room with my friends and we'd moved to Channel 4 and I didn't, I didn't do that deal. It was just the people I was working with, particularly Jeff Atkinson. It was suddenly like, oh, you know, we've, we've gone to Channel 4. So, oh, great. And we set up, we were working with Steve Garrett, his production team called Kudos, and we did our first thing with them. But it coincided, it was 1992 by this stage, mm. um, and it coincided with John Bird and John Fortune who'd done like a year or two with me at the BBC and we wanted to be a bit more political um, and we wanted to have more of a point of view. And I think just by definition, the BBC weren't that interested in doing that kind of satire show at that time. Mm. And so off we went and I, we met two really, really good uh, executives. Uh, and that was Michael Grade, of course, who'd been head of the BBC when I had my first big break, which was on Wogan, actually. It was uh, Terry, Terry Wogan's first of his chat shows in 1985. You know, yeah. he, he suddenly went to three nights a week. And, uh, and he got, <laughs> the very first show was me and um, Wendy Richard and Elton John and wow. Tina Turner. I was terrified. Can you imagine? And they had this me wearing what looked like a deck chair, doing, hello, this is Robin Day, and a lot of Neil Kinnock, and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but Michael Grade had been head of the BBC then, and he was now head of Channel 4, and John Willis was the director of programmes, and they 
got behind us and they said, we know what you can do. And they trusted us. And Channel 4 trusted us for 18 years. We were really lucky from 1992 up to 2010. They said, you know, we trust you. We know you, you know what you're doing. Get on with it. And I don't, I mean, I might've had the odd wobble here and there, but by and large, I kind of never really looked back and never mm. looked over my shoulder. And we just, and there's a team. We had to put the whole show together in, you know, Jeff and I meet on a Monday. We talk about what we were going to do, which which characters we had to choose on a Monday morning, Mm. which eight characters we were going to do that week because we could do a maximum of eight because of the makeup. And, and at that time, all of the production staff were in the room next door, uh, eating croissants and waiting to be told what they were going to do that week. Yeah. And so basically, Jeff and I had two hours to think which characters we were going to do. Uh, we would decide, right, we're going to do Prince Charles this week. We're going to do Tony Blair this week. We're going to have a sketch with Robin Cook this week. Uh, we're going to do Ainsley Harriet this week. We're going to do Trevor McDonald, da, da, da. And then he would go next door and he would give them all their instructions. And I would start writing and Jeff would start writing after that. And we had two days to write the show. And I would sometimes divide it up into sort of, right, I've got to write that sketch by half past 11, finish that one by one o'clock, finish that one by three. And then on Tuesday, John Langdon would come in, we'd revise the script. On Wednesday, we'd go off on location somewhere outside London or on the M25 where we'd have a one room, which would be the office at number 10, um, one room, which could could be the White House, one room, which could be Buckingham Palace, uh, an outside scene. That would be the Wednesday, all day on location. And Thursday, we'd be in the studio. So if I was going to do an Ainsley Harriet or be interviewed by Jon Snow as, let's say, William Hague or something, we would be in a studio environment. And we'd spend half the day on Thursday doing that. And then I'd disappear on on Thursday afternoon and just go, just sort of crash out. Yeah. um, And turn up in the studio on Friday to write, spend all day writing the monologues. And we were a very, very tight-knit team uh from 92 all the way up to 2000 and we just we believed in what we were doing we but we knew by the end of the week it would be topical particularly during the iraq war and we it had something to say and you know john bird and john fortune would be working on their masterpieces mm-hmm. and then they also each had an individual slot and jeff had his genius of just stupid ridiculous sketches like you know um, having somebody driving off at the open using that footage, but instead of a golf ball, he put a Ming vase in the way. Yeah. You know, instead, they were just really stupid, wacky sort of visual jokes. Yeah. And it, it had a, a kind of confidence and it had a team which loved what they were doing. And we were the luckiest people around. It was Vera, who the, the production team that later worked with Alistair McGowan and Ronnie on, on the, um, their show. Yeah. Uh, we were so lucky as a team and just loved it and everyone sort of went the extra mile and that's a cliche but you know to, 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 we even had a we were trying to do Blair in the early days we talk about to, doing Tony Blair was like nailing jelly to a wall and we actually <laughs> got the production team we got somebody in the design department to try and nail jelly to a wall and guess what you know, it was, you couldn't. And he said, look, yeah. I can't do this. I said, yeah, I know that's the point. But um, we had such fun, um, but felt that we were kind of addressing what was happening that week. And I think mm. when it was pulled in 2010, and I wasn't told at the time, you know, it's just, just weeks turned into months, turned into years. And I realized, mm. oh, we're not going to work at Channel 4. We're not going to do the show again. And I kind of look at the coalition and I think, God, you know, we could have done something with that, with um I knew David Cameron, who is a slightly, there's another David Cameron, there's a little bit of, of Keith Floyd to that voice. And mm. I, I think, I think when I was sad, I think I was very, I think I was quite sad that when I, just at the moment, just at the moment when I got David Cameron, um, 
he went. I think that was was quite sad. And that was all about getting everything condensed. I talked about the script earlier, but getting it into one thing. So you've got the voice, you've got the laugh, but also you need to have a satirical line and the shorter, the better. So for him, it was always, you know, people say, are you going to make the rich richer? Are you going to make the poor poorer? I think we've managed to do both. (laughs) And that was the David Cameron thing. And I think we should have, you know, if we'd been there during the coalition, we could have done something about the rise of Farage and, Mm. and where all the seeds were being laid for Brexit from 2010 to 2016, 17, 18. Mm. And we weren't kind of there. And I think I I, I missed that time. And, you know, we've never been quite under the same pressure to deliver and to write stuff which mattered and, mm. and to find a point of view. I said earlier about the the voices and the the laughter. It's kind of it's not I wouldn't set out to write a show like this, but I think if you're describing a show afterwards, so it's descriptive rather than prescriptive, I think the the voices have got to be good, the jokes have got to be funny and you know got to laugh, but it needs to have a point of view. And also I think it's good to tell people stuff that they didn't know before. And if you put those four things together, mm. you've got a show where people sort of return to each other and go, God, I had no idea. Is that what they're doing? Or is that what's what is that is that what the policy is? Which Bird and Fortune would do. And that would be your show. So that's what we were doing. And that's uh, that was the sort of real heyday. Mm. And as I say, I, th- I think I think you know, comedy shines a light on political shenanigans better than the most other forms because you're it 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 gives you the freedom to come at it and to attack it mm. and to find all of the the, the lies to find the, the the squirming that goes on yeah. um, amongst politicians and it, and i think get, you get a certain license in comedy and it, it seems it's, it's that word it is it's yeah. the licensed fool it goes mm. back to shakespearean times or the court jester or something and mm. you know you're given if you like the benefit of the doubt because people know you're you're coming at it from a comedy angle. In a way, I, don't, I haven't thought about this, but in a way, you know, you should think about if Billy Connolly's talking about something, you know, he could talk about anything and you would give him the benefit of the doubt yeah. because you know that his heart's in the right place. He loves people he, and he's a comedian. Mm. But this has changed now. This has really changed now. And funny, it changed for Billy Connolly as well. I think he did something about... Oh, Ken Bigley, wasn't it about the, the hostage who was beheaded or something? Mm. And it made the papers because he was he was pursued across and through an airport because people thought, oh, that line was a bit bad taste or whatever. I think you know they mis- kind of misunderstood the context. And Fra- Frankie Boyle was accused of racism because yeah. of doing a joke on Mop the Week where he was taught he was impersonating somebody from the Ministry of Defence and said, you know, used the N word and said, you know, Department, hello, Ministry of Defence, Department of N bombing. And they they took him, you know, they they, mm. they they accused him of racism, and there's there's really, you know, so we're losing exactly that thing that you talked about of where comedy gives you a license mm. to kind of do. Not anymore, it doesn't, because I no. think you know people would because we've gone through since the referendums or referenda it's got very tribal and if you certainly if you look at twitter you'll see people judging your comedy very very much on what their what their alliance is politically Mm. and that wasn't the case in the in in in, you know the, the decade before so that concludes part one of my interview with rory bremner look out for part two coming soon